I saw in the Times newspaper um, a while ago now, a few years ago, uh, an article about a, a man who went by the unlikely name of Ernest Norman Digweed, and he left his entire estate valued at £26,000 in trust to be paid to the Lord Jesus Christ on his return at his second coming. His will read as follows. If Jesus Christ shall come to reign on earth, then the public trustees, upon obtaining proof which shall satisfy them of his identity, shall pay to Jesus Christ all the property which they hold on his behalf. Now, apparently, there are three box files of letters laying claim to this inheritance, each six inches thick. And the government officer who looks after these files say these letters tend to be, he says, from eccentric types, rather lacking in a sense of humor. <laughs> and, uh, of course, these stories make the press because the press love to make fun of uh, fruitcakes, don't they? Uh, and we dismiss Mr. Digweed as a sort of fruitcake. Um, though there's no doubt the man was clearly a Christian. He, uh, equally, he was an unusual man. Um, but we must beware of dismissing him as a fruitcake and we must beware of uh, the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because this may not be what you choose to do with your will. Um, there's a danger, though, that any talk of the second coming of Jesus is just poetic language or that talk of Jesus' return is the preserve of the lunatic fringe. I remember preaching on Advent Sunday a few years ago when uh, Advent Sunday, of course, being the Sunday, particular Sunday, when the church commemorates uh, or anticipates the return of Jesus um, and focuses at the, through, at the beginning of Advent through the entire Advent season of Jesus coming, not as a baby in Bethlehem, but as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And uh, a friend of mine who was actually directing the choir said to me afterwards, and this was a man who'd sung in choir, church choirs all his life. He'd been an organ scholar. He'd listened, must have listened to hundreds of sermons. And he said to me, Tim, do you really believe that Jesus will come again? He said, I know a lot of people talk about it, but I didn't realize that intelligent, normal people actually believe that Jesus will come back. So I said, first of all, I said, thanks very much. Because <laughs> not many people call me intelligent or, and normal, or even intelligent or normal. But uh, say, so thanks very much. And I said, yes, of course I believe. It's not only true, but I think it's vital. We're concluding our series um, on Jesus' parables from Matthew's Gospel this evening. And I don't know if you spotted that the little parable, it's the parable of the fig tree, just near the end of our, uh, James, the bit that James read for us. It was just one verse. We'll look at it in more detail later on. But to really make sense of this little one-verse parable, we need to have a kind of the big picture of actually the whole of chapter 24 and 25. And I think the most important thing to say is that the return of Jesus, Jesus' second coming, is not the preserve of the lunatic fringe. This is a core Christian doctrine. 
All Christian creeds say that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. So in, in the heat of the moment, I completely forgot we were going to say the creed, but perhaps, Plumman, could we just have the creed up? And you will see, uh, next page, it, most of the creed is about Jesus. There's a bit about God the Father at the beginning, and there's a bit about the Holy Spirit at the end, but the bulk of the creed is about Jesus uh, his death, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And for t- nearly 2,000 years, Christians around the world, doesn't matter what uh, denomination they are, doesn't matter where they are, doesn't matter what flavor of Christian they are, Christians are united in saying this great statement, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The New Testament refers to the second coming of Jesus 250 times. And in the Gospels, on average, once every nine verses, there's a reference to the second coming. And here in Matthew, two entire chapters, 24 and 25. And indeed, these chapters in Matthew, by the way, we're on page 993, in in case you're wondering where we are. Um, They are a response to the conversation Jesus has with his disciples in verses 1 to 3. In verse 1, the disciples, they're walking past the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, these are a group of uh, Jesus' followers from up north, and they've come down to Jerusalem. They don't normally hang out in Jerusalem, and, and they say to Jesus, aren't these magnificent buildings? It's the kind of thing people say to religious people. You know, they say to clergy. Someone told me the other day, Tim, there's a very interesting exhibition of a medieval copes and um, you know, clergy paraphernalia at the V&A coming up, as if Tim would be gripped by this. I'm mean, kind of interested, but you know, not fascinated. Jesus, look at this magnificent building in a bit of ecclesiastical architecture. Jesus won't have any of it. In verse 2, he says, Do you see all these things? Referring to the temple. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And he's referring to the sacking of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. But more than that, that's not the, uh, I mean, you might think that's a disaster enough. Uh, Verse 3, the disciples have a bigger question in, in verse 3. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. So they want to know when the temple's going to be destroyed, but also they want to know when Jesus will come again and what the signs will be. And so he launches off into the rest of chapters 24 and uh, 25. Now, I've got six points for us this evening on the return of Jesus, and please don't kind of um, let your hearts sink. We're going to go at some pace. So um, if you're a note-taker... Um, you know, you, there's a space on the back of your notice sheet and some headings will come up and see if you can spot the kind of subtle uh, hints uh, in the, um, the little acronym that comes up. But the first thing I want to say about the return of Jesus is the certainty of his coming. Because Jesus is quite clear throughout his teaching in the Gospels that he will return, nowhere more so than in this chapter. Look at verse 14. The end will come. Verses 30 and 31. Uh, Verse 30, the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. 
And then verse 42, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Verse 44, the Son of Man will come. The end will come. Your Lord will come. The Son of Man will come. Jesus was absolutely clear that he would return. And this teaching here in chapter 24 and the the parables in chapter 25 are to remind the disciples then and Christians now that Jesus will return. And therefore we are to be prepared. He is certainly coming again. And two parables in chapter 25 are both told to keep Christian believers on their toes. Remember the parable of the wise and foolish virgins? where the bridegroom took a long time to pitch up to the wedding, but he finally arrived after a long wait. And the parable of the talents, the the master of the servants, returned, it says, after a long time. They'd almost given up waiting. But just because he's been a long time in coming doesn't mean that he's not going to come. On the contrary, Jesus keeps reminding his disciples here and elsewhere I will return, so wake up. Look at verse 35 of chapter 24. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus promised us he would return. And the one time where he emphasizes the absolute enduring power of his words is when he wants to emphasize that he will come back one day. He says, everything else will pass, but my words will never pass. So that's the certainty of his return. Second, the object of his coming. Again, Jesus is very clear. His return will be a cause for great joy for some and great despair for others. Look at verse 30 again. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Then verse 31, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now notice here that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is a very deliberate reference back to Daniel chapter 7, um, which is an important uh, prophetic statement, apocalyptic statement, about what's going to happen at the end of the world. If you want to see what it says, page 892, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 where Jesus, uh, sorry, where um, the prophet says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Exactly the words that Jesus uses about himself in Matthew. Daniel goes on, He approached the ancient of days, that is, God himself, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
Daniel is saying that the Son of Man has all the authority and power of God. And one day he is going to return to wrap up history. And here in Daniel chapter 24, Jesus says that he is this same Son of Man, that he will return. And his return will mean two things. First, in verse 30, his return will mean that all the nations of the earth will mourn because Jesus will return as judge. And for those who have ignored Jesus, those who've rejected him, who, to use the language of last week's parable of the wedding banquet, those who've said no thanks to the invitation, that will mean that Jesus' return will be a day of terror, a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a day of mourning. But for those who have turned to him, for those who've accepted the invitation to the wedding banquet, those who've gracious, responded to his gracious invitation, Jesus' return will be a day of great joy and rejoicing, verse 31, as he gathers his elect. Now, this kind of teaching is uh, not particularly popular. It's not very, it doesn't make us feel comfortable, does it, to hear that Jesus will return as judge. But these are the words of Jesus. And as we'll see, he tells us of his return, and he repeatedly tells us of his impending return for a purpose. So the object of Jesus' return is to judge those who reject him and to gather those who have returned to him. Third thing to notice about the return of Jesus is the manner of his coming. Look at verse 26. So if anyone tells you there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the verses just before this, Jesus has been speaking of the false Christs, people who pretend to be the Messiah, Jesus returning to earth. Back in uh, verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, he says that, that they shouldn't be deceived by these false messiahs because they will try and lead you astray. I just did a little research on, and there's a whole page on Wikipedia of people who've claimed to be the Messiah, false messiahs. There's a long, long list, and uh, 27 in the last 100 years that, that they've kind of know about, and you've probably heard of people like David Koresh, um, of the Branch Davidians, and Jim Jones, and various other people, but they're popping up the whole time, every few years. So on average, once every four years, there'll be someone who says that they are the Messiah. And Jesus says that the sign of his return is that it will be unmistakable, just as lightning. You cannot miss a big flash of lightning from the east to the west. So if someone comes up to you and says, by the way, did you know that I am Jesus? Come back. Uh, It's quite a legitimate question to say, does everyone know this on the earth? Is it unmistakable? Are we all in absolutely no doubt you know, every eye will see him, says Revelation. Has every eye seen you? 
And if they say yes, then you ring for the men in white coats. And if they say, uh, good question, you point them to this passage and show them that they are a false messiah because Jesus' return will be unmistakable. Verse 30, he will come with great power and glory, quite different from his first coming, quietly, humbly, in a stable in Bethlehem with a few shepherds and wise men and a company of the heavenly host, praising God. But this will be completely different. The manner of Jesus' return will be awesome in the literal sense of the word. We will be filled with awe. It will be majestic. It will be public. There will be no doubting it as the angels trumpet Jesus' return. Fourth, the importance of Jesus' coming. For the Christian, to know that Jesus is coming back is very exciting. It's most reassuring especially when times are hard. Now, we all go through hard times. And if you haven't gone through hard times, you will. It's a sort of part of the universal condition. It is a wonderful truth to know that Jesus is coming back, that this life is not all there is, that he's promised that he will take his people to be with him in heaven. Remember the place where there's no tears, suffering, crying, and pain? where sorrow and sighing will flee away. It is a wonderful truth, and we should be rejoicing in this. The second coming, the truth of Jesus' return, should fill us with joy and excitement. This life is not all there is. In the the Thessalonians thought that they'd somehow missed the boat with the second coming because some of their number had died and they'd misunderstood it. And Paul wrote to them and told them that Jesus would come, and then he said, encourage one another, and comfort one another with these words. So part of our conversation with one another, maybe even over coffee after the service, should not just be focusing on on the football or the summer holiday or the holiday that's coming up or back to work tomorrow. Of course, we want to find out about those things, but we also want to be encouraging each other. And part of that encouragement should be in the promise of Jesus' return. And if life is tough, and it will be tough, Perhaps it is tough. It's great to have a kind of heavenly perspective. Jesus is coming back. That's great news. Sorry, I got, lost my place in my notes. got so excited. <laughs> At the same time, for the Christian to know that Jesus is coming back is also quite sobering. Look at uh, verses 40 and 41. Two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, there are all sorts of views on um, Jesus' return, and you may be familiar with terms like premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. For this purpose, I don't think it really matters. The point is Jesus is going to come back And the point also is that he will come, as we read, for his elect, and he will come to judge those who have rejected him. And that is a very sober truth. And I would suggest to Christians here tonight that this is a terrific motivation for evangelism. If I think my friends without Christ are perishing, 
I will want to do something about it. The very least, I want to warn them. Even better, I want to, to tell them about Jesus. To tell them that this is the one who loves them. This is the man who came to die for them. This is the man who, whether they accept him or not, he's calling them. He's inviting them to this heavenly banquet. Next Saturday is the last night of the proms. Let's just imagine, although it's a sellout, somebody gives you ten tickets. Say, look, one for you and nine for a group of your friends. Now, what will you do? I mean, it's, I, I don't know about you. It's, I would have thought it's one of the, you know, these would be great tickets to get. I'd be ringing around my friends saying, hey, look, drop everything. Come with me to the last night of the proms. What I wouldn't do is just shove them in my back pocket and forget about them or say, can't be bothered to invite them or I don't want to offend them. It may not be their sort of music or it might all be just a little bit jingoistic for their liking or something like that. No, if I've, I've got this great invitation, surely I want to issue it. How much more so with this great invitation Jesus makes? He's coming for his elect. Brilliant. He's coming to judge those who've rejected him. Let's get inviting. I can't give you tickets for the last night of the proms, but I can give you invitations to big questions. I can give you, there are stacks of invitations to Alpha over there. There are piles of uncovered gospels over there, one-on-one -on -one Bible studies in John's gospel. How about inviting friends to those? If we think that being a Christian is just about going to church and being nice and adopting a particular lifestyle, we probably won't have much urgency with our friends who aren't Christians. But if we believe that the eternal God is one day going to step onto this earth and wrap up history, well, that is surely a great motivation for evangelism. But it's also a great motivation for holy living. Look at verses 45 and 46. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Knowing that Jesus is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords is a great incentive for us to be prepared. Tomorrow, the new term starts in most schools, and I just want to take you back to your own, your own school a few years ago. It's um, Friday afternoon. And your maths teacher, who's called Mr. Advent, uh, is not there. You arrive at the maths lesson. There's a message on the whiteboard that says, Mr. Advent, or he says, I have being called away, but I will come back. Please get on with exercise 23 on page 72. And uh, the class comes in, you sit down, and there's one wag who is just about to rub off his message. And uh, another teacher comes in, and he says, Mr. Advent's not here at the moment, but he's coming back. See his message on the board? Get on with exercise 23. 
Do you remember what happens? For two minutes, people open their books and their files. And then what happens? Well, a bit of chit-chat. After four minutes, it sounds like there's a party going on. After six minutes, there's somebody, a couple of guys playing keepy-uppy with a bit of rolled-up A4. After seven minutes, there's someone rummaging through Mr. Advent's desk. And then suddenly he comes in the door. What are you doing? What's going on? And he says, didn't you see my message on the board? And we say, oh, well, yeah, but we didn't think you were coming back. You've been gone so long. And he says, but I specifically said I was coming back. Why haven't you been getting on with it? And the whole class is, you know, put into tension. Jesus is coming back. He says he's coming back. He's been gone a long while, but he expects us to get on with the work. His return is an incentive for godly living. It's an incentive to be prepared. Verse 46, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. And the importance of Jesus' return leads us to our fifth point, the nearness of Jesus' return, verses 32 and 33, and we finally reach our parable for today, the fig tree. Verse 32, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, and he's talking about the signs of uh, the return of Jesus that have, he's been talking about through the early part of the chapter. When you see all these things, you know that it is near. That is, the second coming is near. Some translations have, he is near, Jesus is near, right at the door. It's a very simple principle of gardening. You don't need to be a gardening expert to know that when a tree starts budding in spring, you're going to see some leaves soon and some blossom and some fruit. And through Matthew 24, Jesus has told his disciples of the signs that the end is near. We had them read earlier. Verse 6, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. That's one sign. Verse 7, nation rising against nation. Famines and earthquakes, another sign. Verse 9, persecution of Christians, another sign. Verse 11, false prophets, and he says, Jesus, that these signs are like the budding leaves of a fig tree. Verse 33, when you see all these things, you'll know that it, the second coming, is near. He's coming back, and he's coming back soon. So finally, and in conclusion, point six, get ready. Having spoken about the certainty of his return, how he'll come to judge and to save, and that every eye will see him and that he could come at any time, Jesus concludes in verse 42, therefore, keep watch. Keep on your toes. Just as the maths teacher could come back through that door at any moment, he said he was going to come back. We shouldn't be surprised. Verse 44, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. 
if we know Jesus as our Saviour and Lord now, we'll be ready to welcome him when he returns one day as our King. One Christian, uh, who's long since dead now, once, I once heard him say this, we should live as though Jesus Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming again tomorrow with that kind of immediacy and urgency. And my prayer is that God will give us a real longing for his coming, his return, that we won't sort of put it on the back burner and say it doesn't really matter, that he'll give us a real sense of urgency both about our own lives and indeed about our friends who don't yet know him, and that he will give us a real desire to live for him And that knowing he's coming back will give us a real sense of perspective and priority in these last days, however long it is before Jesus returns. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we read of your return, we feel that everything else in this world pales into complete insignificance. And yet we know that everything else in this world often has huge importance for us. So we do pray that you'd help us to get our priorities right. Help us not to forget these teachings. Help us, as you urge us to to do, to keep watch, to be ready, and not to be caught napping. We pray that we would live godly lives in the light of your impending return and that we would seek to reach out to others to tell them of the loving Savior who's coming for his people. And we ask it in his name. Amen.